What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Matt Galligan is the founder and CEO of the Picks and Shovels Company. In this conversation, we talk about crypto custody, crypto data, trading, and what needs to happen for crypto to continue progressing. Matt also shares a company secret, so you'll definitely want to listen. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. Before we get started, I want to talk about one of our sponsors, BlockFi. These guys are doing really interesting work in crypto lending. What they allow you to do is keep your crypto, put it up as collateral, and receive a US dollar loan funded directly to your bank account. They do loans ranging from $2,000 to $10 million, and they're perfect for helping you reach your financial goals of all sizes. You should visit BlockFi.com POMP. Again, that's BlockFi.com POMP. Again, one more time, type it in BlockFi.com POMP if you'd like to learn more about putting your crypto to work without having to sell it. Definitely do it. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. I'm super excited. We've got uh, Matt Galligan here. Um, so thank you so much for coming, sir. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, all right. So many people probably don't know your background, actually. Uh, let's start there and how you got into crypto. Totally. Uh, so I'm a multi-time entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur, whatever kind of title you want to give it. Uh, I got my start in 2007 with a company called Social Thing, Social Media Aggregation. It was a time when everybody was using a bajillion different social networks and we just had a dashboard for you to see everything in one place. And I got in through Techstars, had a great experience and ran for all of 15 months. And then we got acquired by AOL, uh, which was a pretty wild ride from start to finish. Um, spent a bit of time at AOL, then started a second company called Simple Geo, um, which was backend geolocation uh, for app developers. And uh, that company, just quick note on that company, uh, had some really great employees there, one of which was, uh, or team members, I should say, um, one of which was Zuko, uh, who went on to found uh, Zcash and be the CEO of Zcash company, which is pretty awesome. It was amazing working with him back in the day. Um, third company was one called Circa. Uh, it was a mobile news product that allowed you to stay in touch with the stories that you cared about, followed them, and as they progressed, you would get updates on them over time. Um, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, ultimately, though, we had issues monetizing. So that one unfortunately shut down, um, which was really tough. Uh, and I spent a number of years kind of uh, coming out of that and figuring out what was going to be next for us. Um, but once we, uh, once I kind of got my feet back under me, spent a little bit of time at Postmates leading design. And then after that, started getting into crypto. Um, so that was a pretty crazy experience, um, everything prior to that. But crypto was a, a, a really wild journey. Uh, I'd learned about this stuff when I was doing Circa because we had these stories that you could follow. And when you followed a story, you would get updates on whatever was happening, whatever new kinds of information. And every time there was like a major price swing, I would get an update. Um, and so I always had eyes on crypto, but I was not an 
that all interested. But then I had two friends, uh, Brian Ford and Tom Saris, who started introducing me into this really around early on. And the, the two names, you know, were uh, important because uh, Brian Ford uh, actually was one of the first like crypto candidates. So he ran for um, California's 45th um, district. Uh, for a seat in the house, and he was accepting crypto donations. His background being that he worked for the Obama administration and then did MIT Media Lab. He was the director of digital currency there in 2015. And he told me about Bitcoin, and I kind of just rolled my eyes, but I was in, you know, impressed that uh, he was getting into it and maybe crypto is going somewhere if somebody that, uh, that I trust that much is doing it. And then my buddy Tom, shortly thereafter, told me about Ethereum. And again, I was like, this all sounds crazy. But fast forward to very early last year, January, February of last year, and my girlfriend at the time told me she had a Coinbase wallet. And mm-hmm. what is interesting about that is my girlfriend at the time, uh, not wife, was a physical therapist, not interested in tech hardly, um, didn't really do much with that. Uh, but she had this, uh, this Coinbase wallet and had Bitcoin in it. I was like, okay, that's really interesting. Now it's time to learn. Uh, and so I did everything I could to the deep dive, read the white paper, white paper, got into Ethereum, uh, read the white paper there. And then, as they say, went down the proverbial rabbit hole and never came back out. <laughs> um, so that's how I kind of got into crypto. Everything after that is, uh, is, is just been an extension of a lot of curiosity. I'm a product builder. I love product and design and building beautiful things. And so crypto, I felt like, was a really great opportunity for me to, uh, you know, kind of use those skills and build great things. Um, but once I caught the bug, I knew that I wanted to spend the next 10 years in this space. Got it. And so when you first discovered crypto, you know, and, and you were kind of paying attention to it, maybe not a, a full, um, you know, enthusiast, what was your general take? And then what was that that tipping point? Was it just education that got you from, you know, hey, I'm aware, but not enthusiastic yet to kind of going all in on it? So in the beginning, I thought what it was, was just a magic internet money. And I didn't understand the primitives. I didn't understand what the basis of this thing was or what made it special at all. And when I read the Bitcoin white paper, and I began to understand this concept where two parties could transact without an intermediary, it started to blow my mind a bit. Um, this was kind of coming at a time when, uh, there's questions around data privacy and, uh, you know, your data being stored in all these places. And I think whatever it was, I think it was Equifax, um, or whoever it was that just got hacked. Uh, the idea that little bits of you are hiding out everywhere, uh, being stored in some place. And the idea that there was this thing where you could be your own individual, you could transact without anybody in between was, was really fascinating. And I think Chris, Chris Dixon said it best where this was a new primitive. If mobile was a primitive, uh, a new building block, if you had social as a building block, I mean, the internet was a building block before that, trust was now the new building block. So you could build software that could be in and of itself trusted without that intermediary. And it just changed the landscape of what I thought could be possible in tech, whether that was voting or, of course, everybody 
that's interested in blockchains goes down the, the supply chain rabbit hole. But uh, <laughs> then it all came back around to, to finance and I was just, I was blown away. I, I couldn't escape uh, the possibilities. Of course. And then what is, um, you know, kind of the, the f- as you dug deeper and deeper into it, at what point do you go from, I'm interested in this to, I want to start a company. And then, you know, did you know exactly what you wanted to start or, or did you do a lot more uh, kind of digging through? I did a lot of exploration and you laughed at the supply chain part. And, and now in retrospect, it looks so obvious, but at the time, uh, so I'm a, I'm a coffee enthusiast. I'm a, I'm a beer enthusiast. Um, and I thought of those things as, uh, you know, specialty supply chains, ones where there's a lot of complication, um, you know, in, in beer, there's hops and there's been all these kind of like shortages and crises and, uh, times when, you know, one big company buys up a bunch and I'm like, man, how, how do you really get to a world where the smaller purveyors are going to be able to succeed? And it went into this whole, like, again, supply chain thing. And so I actually went down this path of, okay, what could what could a supply chain look like if you had everybody uh, participating in a network, a specialty commodity uh, supply chain? And looked into hops, coffee, cocoa for a long time. Um, this was all over the course of a couple of months. And the conclusion that I came to was just, okay, this is not for me. I don't have the power in, in those respective industries. There's way too many things in play. And frankly, couldn't figure out how to easily root those things onto a blockchain. So abandon it. Um, again, looked at the industry and said, okay, what are the use cases? I got excited about digital assets, about, you know, say virtual goods, um, you know, virtual land and in-game purchases and all of these things. And somewhere along the way, you know, just decided that, okay, sure. All of these things are really impressive and are going to be very interesting in the future. They are not today and they are not reality today and will not be for some time. But what is finance? And this was around the same time that we were diversifying the portfolio I was helping uh, Carrie get into other things. Um, She came back home from a trip with a slip of paper from somebody that uh, was sitting next to her on the plane that just said ETH LTC XRP. And we <laughs> took the BTC and started getting into some of those other assets. Um, I was helping her do those, uh, those investments. And uh, at the end of the day, then I was like, okay, cool. How much is it worth? And plugged it into an Excel spreadsheet, actually, sorry, Google sheet, got it connected to all these APIs to do real-time price checking. And then I was like, man, this is a nightmare. And I asked around, I was like, okay, guys, what do you guys use? Um, all my friends that were investing in it. And everyone just said, Oh yeah, I built my own custom Google Sheet. And I was like, all right, this is a terrible user experience. We have billions of dollars being invested in this. What the heck are we doing managing all of this in in uh in sheets? Uh of course, come to find out later that most of the financial world actually runs on Excel, but that's neither here nor there. So Absolutely. I just got super interested in the in the finance side and felt like that was the place to 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 dive in. Got it. And then Let's talk about what you guys are doing today uh, with Interchange and, and, and Picks and Shovels. Totally. So to clarify, uh, Picks and Shovels was the, the cheeky name that I came up with uh, that actually didn't happen to have any other registrations in the state of Delaware. Um, and we kind of stuck with that for the uh, foot in the door um, kind of thing. But Interchange is the name of the product. And Interchange is a solution for any business working with crypto 
to do accounting, portfolio management, reconciliation, deal with pricing issues, all of this stuff. So all told, it is a front-to-back office solution for businesses that are investing in and operating in crypto. Um, and we got it started because it, it came out of that problem. I mean, both of my co-founders uh, had been in crypto since 2013. I'd been really excited about crypto and obviously investing a little bit, um, but could not figure out what to do with all this stuff. So we wanted to build a solution that was going to not only work uh, you know, for us, but we got really excited about institutions uh, and what that might mean for the whole of the space if more institutions got on board and had really quality software to manage this stuff. So that was the path we had headed down. And Interchange as a solution is primarily accounting, and then we get a little bit into portfolio management next year. Got it. And so from that, you know, as you start to build that business, I think most people in the crypto space would agree with you. Uh, it's super difficult to do portfolio management. There are ho- the tools that are all built today are, are really hacked together and, and, and frankly, just poor in general. Um, and there's a lot of man hours being wasted, right? There's people who are sitting there uh, who, who are manually entering in the data and just kind of very tedious, um, you know, slow work what is the vision in terms of that ultimate solution? Does this look similar to like traditional portfolio management tools outside of crypto? Are there specific things in the crypto space that lend itself to be a little bit different? Can I just walk me through that, that, that really far out vision as to what uh, is possible here? Yeah. So if we narrow the scope a lot, um, you can think of much of what we wanted to do around the user experience to be more like mint. Mint, prior to Mint, you'd have your, you know, your credit card um, account, you'd have your bank account, you'd have all these disparate things. And Mint just made it easy to see it all in one dashboard. And when we started this thing, we were like, all right, it's got to be as simple as Mint. In crypto, if you've done your crypto taxes, if you've you know, kind of tried to track your portfolio, you'll know that one, you have many, many, many inputs to deal with. You have every exchange that you operate on, every blockchain wallet that you have to deal with, pumping in all those addresses. You have so much data. Every single one of those sources has totally different ways of handling its data. These these CSV exports that you get to be able to do your taxes, they look terrible. Uh, Mostly, they're difficult to understand at best. When you put it all back together, though, um, it has to be right. You have to have all the data or else you don't actually add up. And that is where we felt like we could really uh, shine, which is, you know, pull all the data in as much as possible, kind of have this semi-automated process of reconciliation where Mm -hmm. to the extent that we can actually know what is going on, uh, then we can present it to the user and say, hey, can you confirm for us that we're right? Or let's just say you sent some you know, uh, crypto from Bitcoin from this address into an address that we don't recognize. Then at least throwing that up and saying, hey, we don't know where this is going. Please help us figure this out. And so doing as much as we could to be automated kind of in that mint world, um, but but leveraging a lot of the advantages that crypto brings, for instance, like blockchains, uh, that they are public, that we could look at the entire chain of events and then know all the different transactions that were in and out of a particular wallet. Got it. And that's different than the traditional financial world. The other thing that is different is in the traditional world, you have decades and decades of precedent and software 
and mm-hmm. standards and all this stuff. And none of that exists in crypto. So we're reinventing literally everything. And is the thought here that the traditional portfolio man or uh, portfolio management tools, uh, they don't know how to do this. It's too small today. It's just a classic innovator's dilemma. Like why haven't they really come in and solved this problem yet? It's a combination of all those things. I mean, to put the space into perspective here, when we look at the totality of, uh, say, global institutional assets under management, $110 trillion. Crypto is maybe $5 billion institutional. And so it's just minuscule to a lot of those that are building software solutions for those those parties. The other thing is it doesn't map one-to-one. In a lot of ways, these other assets, they settle back to fiat. If you sell your stocks, you're settling back to fiat before you move into some other asset. In crypto, you could sell your Bitcoin for Ethereum before you then spend that Ethereum in some sort of ICO, right? That was the very common example from last year. And what a lot of people got shocked by is, holy crap, there's a taxable event in the middle of this. And so all of these things, there's tons of nuances uh, around those like multi-hop transactions, as well as you have forks and airdrops and chain splits. And you just have so much uh, nuance in the space that goes way beyond what the traditional space has to deal with. That to me, it just seems like one, it's small for a lot of these traditional software providers. And, and, and two, there's just so much that has to get built for them to be even able to come to parity with something like what we're, we're putting together. Got it. Uh, and, and so with this, you know, the interesting part about portfolio management and blockchain is uh, portfolio management is obviously the data of your portfolio, but also there's elements of what else is going on. Right. So, so it's not just the assets that you hold, it's just the market and, and benchmarks and um, assets that you could buy and things like that. Right. Um, in that situation, how do you look at like what I'll call on chain data or, or digitally native data um, that can be delivered from you know, nodes or research, um, stuff like that, versus like more legacy or traditional data sets, right? Is that stuff that you think will um, be really defendable for crypto uh, native portfolio management tools? Or do you think that this all kind of becomes uh, you know, relatively table stakes over time? Look, a lot of it is about the money. So the, the okay. table stakes are going to be to make sure that the accounting works, right? So there's a lot of inputs on that as well. And it's not just the on-chain data, but it's also like where you get your pricing data from. And even that, you know, there is no globally recognized price for Bitcoin, period, right? If you ask somebody on the street what the price of Apple is, they're going to be able to tell you what the price of Apple is. Um, but Bitcoin does not have that at all. There's so many different venues um, and even then, the output that's coming from those venues and then put into these pricing aggregators like on-chain effects and coin market cap, they're all very different. So one, that will be table stakes, but it's still challenging. When it comes to blockchain data, there's a ton of interesting stuff that can be grokked from that. You know, We're going to have to see where the space evolves, though, because if there's some sort of greater focus around privacy, for example, like... If you want to track things on Monero, Monero is a totally different kind of beast than, say, Bitcoin. Bitcoin, there's tons of stuff you can do around, I don't know, you want to track a, uh, an exchange's address so that you can look at the inflows and outflows of crypto uh, into that address. If you mm-hmm. see you know, huge 
old wallets starting to move Bitcoin, that can be, you know, sort of a precursor to some sort of major market movement. And that can be important for a fund manager who's going to make decisions based on that data, could be integral into software. For us, you know, we would like to work with some of the best research there, uh, around this data, but we will help out at the intersection of that on-chain data and your data. Yeah. And, and so let's talk a little bit about kind of where you guys are today. And then obviously you guys have some news to share in terms of, um, you know, uh, recent moves that you've made. In companies past, there is this iterative quality to it where you can start small and just build and build and build from there. To do property or portfolio management right, accounting right, you have to have so much in place before you can even turn the system on. And so we've been building, you know, accounting systems. We've been building, uh, I mean, just literally the math, the fetchers for all the different exchanges, uh, all of that stuff. And so we've been building for a long time. Very excited about what we're building. Uh, we've been showing the product off to some fund managers and folks, and it's really great. Um, Along the way, though, we realized just how important uh, some of the accounting side was, as well as uh, the relationships that may exist in the space. Um, and there's this other component of crypto, or I guess just institutional investing in general, which is fund administration. Um, when we got started, we didn't know what a fund administrator was. The funds that we were talking to didn't know what a fund administrator was. And this is this service provider that essentially becomes your accountant, right? They sit in your back office uh, or they're a, a service provider for you. For you you, uh, you know, essentially give them your various information for your uh, accounting and then they handle everything from there. Send out the reports to your LPs, stuff like that. And we realized at that time then, okay, it's not just us that has to have this data. They're going to have this data too. And they're going to be the ones that provide the books and stamp the books and say, this is the, this is the source of truth for you. And so we now realize, okay, there's this other party in the mix that we're going to have to deal with. Along the way, we kept hearing this one name pop up over and over and over again. And that was Angie Stover. Angie Stover is, was the earliest fund administrator in crypto. They were the largest fund administrator in crypto, had the most funds um, under administration. Uh, they were definitely the 800-pound gorilla in this space. And we had some great conversations early on. Hey, we're going to do portfolio management. We're really excited. We're going you know, to have a lot of similar clients. Um, they, at the time, had actually been spending a number of years building out their own software solution for accounting. And they called this CoinVantage. And CoinVantage was going to do, you know, sort of the automated retrieval, reconciliation, all of that uh, in the interest of getting into the proper books so that MG Stover as an administrator could put everything together and have accounting pretty much taken care of to then send out reports to their, to their LPs. And throughout the summer, uh, we had great conversations with those guys. Uh, Matt Stover and I uh, had spent a good amount of time talking about where the space was going, ways that we could work together. Are we going to be competitive in the future? Don't know. And uh, so, but really kept a, a good conversation rolling, culminating to, you know, about a month ago, you know, we had this, uh, I had this kind of itch in the back of my neck of like, man, what could it be like if we put these things together? What could we do in the market? Um, what kind of software could we build together? 
And so I reached out to Matt. I was like, hey, this is a crazy idea. But what if we put these companies uh, together? What if Picks and Shovels acquires CoinVantage? So CoinVantage was a subsidiary of MG Stover. They'd been the ones building the software uh, that they used to do the administration. And so with that, we had a few hours of phone calls, kind of gut checked it with everybody and uh, decided, hey, let's go down this path. Um, The team and I flew out to Denver. We sat down and that's the path that, uh, that we got on. So... We are finalizing process where uh, CoinVantage comes in, um, their employees, uh, their team members, a couple amazing engineers will join our team. Uh, the software will now be a part of the interchange family, and we will now have the front-to-back office solution. So it, everything from accounting to uh, you know pricing, reconciliation, um, and then we'll be able to facilitate the portfolio management in the future, but uh, we're really excited about this uh, this partnership. All right, before we continue with this conversation, I want to mention our sponsor again, BlockFi. Remember, they do crypto lending. So you post it at your crypto as collateral, they give you a US dollar loan, and you can use the US dollars to do whatever you want. You should visit BlockFi.com slash POMP and then tweet at me that you went. If you tweet at me after you went to BlockFi.com slash POMP, maybe I'll throw you a like, a smiley face, or the fire emoji. The fire emoji is the best. Remember, go to BlockFi.com slash POMP and I'll see you on Twitter. Yeah, look, I am. Uh, I, I'm incredibly uh, excited for you guys. I think this is uh, this is um, you know a big step forward. Obviously, it gives you guys a uh, um, a nice foothold into the market, and uh, you know we, we obviously um, my partner Jason and I invested previously out of one of our old funds, and then what you're doing. So uh, so congratulations. Yeah, thanks. We're we're super excited about it, and it just makes sense. Um, I mean, Matt has an incredible amount of experience in this space. You know the the team that's been building CoinVantage has this wealth of knowledge of just operating. You know the one thing about building software is that everything prior to launch, you're in this beautiful vacuum where everything works and there are no problems. There's you know no bugs. Everybody you know, gets along with it just fine. But then the moment that you launch, there's all these kind of edge cases that can pop up. And in this space in particular, uh, with all the data you know differences and all the different exchanges and blockchains. There are so many edge cases, and it's why the manual process of this is such an undertaking. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the great things that we're going to uh, benefit from is just years of accounting for this stuff, uh, and going through audits, and and standing that sort of test, uh, and bringing that knowledge into the team, pairing it with our you know software uh, prowess, our, our our design, uh, all of that. I think it's going to be a really great matchup. Yeah, let's uh, let's definitely hope so. Um, and, and so, let's talk a little bit about uh, the funds in general in the space, right? Because I think you know I've written a bunch about, and there's a lot of talk now around um, funds shutting down. You know, new funds being raised now, and kind of the deep bear market. What's your general take on how the fund landscape evolves over the next, you know, let's call it two years, and then maybe kind of longer term, like ten years? It's it's an interesting subject, you know. We got into this knowing very little about how investing worked, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, we knew personally, we knew the retail investment, but you know, we had to learn along the way about, about uh, investing in this space uh, from an institutional standpoint. And early on, a lot of the conversations that we were having with these, these new funds that were popping up, um, 
they too didn't know a lot about, say, the specifics of how this stuff worked. They didn't know about administration. They didn't know about custody. They didn't know about anything that actually made this, say, a legitimate institutional um, you know, process. And so with that, we, we looked at the space and said, okay, there's going to be a number maybe that have been in the space for a while that are going to be wildly successful. Uh, and, and we really believe that. And then there's going to be a bunch that were the, you know, just sort of uh, folks popping up uh, on the fringes, um, raising, say, 10 million bucks and, you know, essentially saying, hey, I'm, I'm a crypto fund manager, all because, you know, they got lucky uh, at one point and had, you know, a little bit of crypto and wrote it up and then could now and market themselves that way. So we sort of felt like there was going to be a maturity that would take place and it was going to happen after the next bear market. So our belief is there's going to be plenty that survive, uh, you know, granted, you know, down quite a bit, but will survive and then uh, come out the other side stronger. There's going to be a number that get washed out and, you know, maybe the crypto market becomes stronger as a result. But then the next class, I think, is what gets really interesting. It's folks that miss the boat the first time around, uh, are learning more about the space, are learning more about the technology, getting excited about it, raising these new funds. You know, as you, as you mentioned, there's a bunch of funds that are, I think, prepping to launch, we hear, uh, you know, little bits and pieces from different folks. And from what we understand, there's a lot of dry powder waiting. Um, now, what exactly, you know, are they pricing the bottom, or waiting for the bottom? Are they, we don't know yet. Um, but there's a lot that's waiting in the wings. Uh, you know, it's down right now, no question, but we're excited about the prospects of more institutional investing in the future here. Got it. And, and so as this market continues to, um, you know, mature from, a, from an infrastructure and, and a kind of sustainability standpoint, but also at the same time, prices are dropping. You know, my general take is that's when the entrepreneurs are really kind of digging in. There, there's less hype, less distractions, and, and they're building um, these companies. You've obviously built a, a number of companies uh, over, uh, over your career. What's your sense of what's happening right now, right? Is that actually true on the ground with founders who, who, who are um, able to focus and build? Or, or, or do you still see some of the craziness of the 2017 bull market? Definitely not the craziness of last year. <laughs> uh, no question. I'm going to put it into two camps. Um, okay. On one hand, you have unfortunately, a number of projects that raised, you know, with ICO funds last year that are just going to explode in glorious fashion. And that's because they raised their funds. They did not diversify quick enough into fiat or other things. They held on to their ETH or BTC or whatever. And they felt like right high, right? And as the prices were moving up and up and up. And they went out and, you know, hosted lavish parties and hired a bunch of folks and went crazy on marketing and all of these things, uh, only to then, you know, have their treasuries struck, you know, 80, 90%. And so you have this, this dearth of, of projects out there that are now, you know, crawling back to venture capitalists and saying like, Hey, you know, let's do an equity round now. Um, yep. And that's going to be a phenomenon that we're definitely going to be seeing end of this year, coming into next year, and you're just going to see a bunch get wiped out. That's one class of project. 
Um, and I don't know how, uh, you know, how successful they would have been without the bear market anyways, even if it would have stayed on a bull run, maybe they would have made poor decisions. Um, what I get excited about is the other class. Um, if you look back at the last, um, at the last market, uh, you know, kind of bear market into bull market. Um, you saw some of these companies hunkered down. Uh, in some ways, it went into that whole like blockchain, not Bitcoin mm-hmm. thing. Um, but they survived and they survived because they just stuck to their guns and they built and built and built. And I think this is going to be the same kind of thing. In our case, you know, we believe that it removes distraction, right? If the market was nothing but crazy hot, then we'd have all kinds of folks coming into us saying like demo, 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 and I need this feature and this feature and this feature. And I think what this allows us to do is get really tight uh, on the things that we need to accomplish because, you know, essentially the the funds, the exchanges, the OTC desks, all of our potential customers, you know, need this. And we're just going to find this period of less distraction. I think that's the key to everything is just we're not looking at the prices all day long. We are not going to look at the notifications rolling in on, you know, what's happening with price debt. Uh, I think it's just going to allow the teams to focus in a way that they wouldn't have been able to with a, with a bull market. Previously. Yeah. The, the other piece too, I think is um, the media coverage, right? Of kind of into the hype cycle, you get the, um, how high can it go? How, you know, is this a bubble, all of that? And then when it crashes, you still get tons of media coverage. It just happens to be of the negative nature, right? Totally. Um, and that's tough. That's tough, right? Because the media sometimes is in it for sensation, right? And especially in crypto where so few people understand what Bitcoin even is to begin with. When you see these flashy headlines of, you know, this thing is up to 20,000. Um, I mean, it gets everybody interested. I can't tell you, and I'm sure everyone in this space has had this experience. Like last year during the bull run, I had everyone asking me, what is this? Should I get in? You know, what's XRP? You know, what's BTC? Blah, 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 blah. And, you know, when things turned, you know, the teeth come out. It's the same sensational headlines, just in reverse. It is the world is collapsing around you and everything is terrible. And, you know, Bitcoin has dropped and it's probably dead. And Again, this has happened before, um, but because you know of the run-up last year, you just have more eyeballs on it. And short-term, it's going to—I I do think it's going to hurt the market a bit um, as far as say retail investors' excitement about this long-term. Um, but I do think, or in the short term, but I do think in the long term, um, this is just going to be uh, another blip. Yep, it, it is. Uh, hopefully, for both of us going to be uh, going to play out that way. <laughs> and, well, we're placing our bets on this, right? Both of us. Um, and, and we really, I, I believe in the space. I believe in what possibilities exist around the technology and uh, so many of the different things that, um, that can happen around, you know, this, the, even Bitcoin as just store of value, medium exchange, whatever you, whatever you want to think of, there's so much possibility and it's just got to survive. Um, but I feel good about that. For sure. For sure. Um, okay. And, and so, uh, usually before I wrap up, I do kind of quick fire questions here. Um, and then at the end, I allow you to ask me one question. Um, to start though, what do you think is the most important company in crypto other than your own? Most important company? Um, you know, 
that's a really tough one because there are so many that are doing so many different things. Um, I'll just say that for now, maybe Coin Center. Um, Interesting. Why that one? They're doing such a good job with staying level-headed and trying to educate lawmakers, right? Lawmakers and the public um, trying to get away from the you know the fud and trying to get away from the sensational headlines and have very measure have a very measured approach to um, you know how these assets should be regulated, how we should treat them. And I think that's really important. We need to have a voice like that, you know, speaking for the space. For sure. They, they are, uh, it, the part I like about them is they've got uh, a, a group of different types of individuals and they all have a way of um, kind of communicating differently. So like Naraj is uh, all over Twitter. He's got the memes, he's got everyone laughing and, and uh, you know, quite a good audience. And then some of the other folks as well. And I think it's a, a really strong kind of multi-strategy approach to, uh, to communicating not only the ideas of crypto, but also the importance of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's, it, it's an incredibly important, uh, you know, partner in the space. And, you know, I really hope that, um, you know, they, they, they continue and, and thrive on their mission because it's just good for everybody. For sure. Um, all right. If you had a magic wand and could wave it and change or improve one regulation, what would it be? Yeah. So the, the previous guests have, have knocked out some of my answers before. So, you know, <laughs> Andy Bromberg and corn list was the accredited investor rules. And then you just had Josh Stein with Harbor and he had the number of investors. And so, you know, your, your, your list of other options are starting to dwindle, but there was some legislation, um, last year that was trying to be pushed through in the house, um, representative Jared Polis, who's now the governor of Colorado and, um, David Schweikert, um, of Arizona. Um, did you know, for instance, there was something called the congressional blockchain caucus? I did not. <laughs> um, I did not either. They were the, they were the co-chairs and they tried to pass something called the cryptocurrency tax fairness act of 2017. And the, and the gist of this thing was that for purchases under $600, they would not have to report capital gains. And it seemed it's so simple, right? And frankly, there's a ton of flaws with it because you kind of have to really make sure there's a separation between, well, you know, if you, you know, spend under $600, um, you know, and that's not a taxable event, then are there going to be just a bunch of bots that are going to be programmed to buy positions under $600? You've got to figure some of those things out. But the premise of it is very simple, which is that for cryptocurrency to become a, you know, medium of exchange, um, uh, you know, a, a, for it to become a thing where I can just go out and spend my Bitcoin, we have to fix the tax situation around it because I don't, I mean, first off, like spending $5 for in Bitcoin uh, for coffee may seem a little bit ridiculous, but if somebody wants to do that, then calculating the capital gains on that $5 spend is kind of ridiculous. Uh, so if I could change anything, it would be, you know, looking into that, solving that problem, because in a number of years, you know, if we are able to spend our cryptocurrency um, in, in public, uh, then that would be uh, a, 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 a challenge, right? It would be a barrier to that happening. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. What's the most important book you've ever read? Most important book I've ever read. Um, you know, the one that changed a lot for me, and it's kind of a, uh, a kind of a weird answer, but, um, John Krakow had a book called into the wild and uh, it was about this, you know, this one I do. 
Um, it was about this crazy kid, trust fund kid who, you know, wanted to, uh, get away from everything in civil life and, uh, go explore the wilderness. And, um, he, he ended up making a ton of crazy decisions on his, on the way and, um, lost his life as a result. But what, what really intrigued me was just this idea that you have this kid who is willing to forego everything for, uh, you know, exploration for the, for the adventure. And this was a time where I'd had, uh, you know, experience with some health issues and was sitting in a hospital bed, reading this book and really feeling like maybe up until that point, I hadn't done a lot with my life. Um, you know, granted I was like, whatever it was like 20 years old or something like that. So there's not too much you could really do, but I was, I grew up in central Illinois. I grew up in a thousand person town and, uh, with, with cornfields on every side. And, um, you know, it just wasn't, um, I didn't have that sort of big world experience, uh, but the internet really put me there. And so when I read that book, I was like, man, what if like this life that I have here in my small town is not the one that, I'm just going to always have. What if I can take more risks and try new things and find myself elsewhere as a result? Um, so it was important to me because it just cracked a, a little opportunity for me, it just cracked a little bit um, of my brain open uh, and open my opportunity or open up my uh, mind to other possibilities. I think they made it into a movie, didn't they? They did. And the book, as they say, was better. Uh, but the movie, <laughs> you know, if you want to, if you want to skip to the end, just go watch the movie and it's pretty decent. Yeah. All right. So as long as, uh, as long as it gets like 80%, some people will go watch the movie, right? <laughs> right. Totally. That, totally. That, that is, uh, that's fair. Um, all right. So uh, one non-crypto question, and then you could ask me a question to end this thing. Um, let's admit that there are aliens and they exist. Uh, we always hear about, um, you know, human-like aliens. Normally I ask if there are alien pets. I'm not going to ask that question this time because I've started thinking about something a little bit different. Um, oh, I like it. The world is really, it. really big, right? And the world, and there's so many different galaxies and unknowns. There's over a thousand planets at some point, right? Um, what are the odds that there is another more advanced civilization somewhere out there that we don't know about, but they know about us? In they have to feel super high, like crazy high odds. Um, I mean, so one thing for them to know about us, we have to think about the speed of light, right? Um, and, you know, the, the, the vastness of the universe means that when we look out into the universe, we're looking back in time, right? When we look at that star, we're looking at that star at a fixed point in time that was, you know, however many years ago right? We're not looking at real time uh, light from that star. And so, you know, on one hand, could it be radio waves, right? Could the radio waves that emanate from, the, uh, from, from, from this planet eventually reach, you know, another place and then they can, uh, they, they can understand, hey, there's another civilization out there. Um, you know, there are so many variables. It's like we have interstellar travel now, right? We have satellites that have gone out beyond our own solar system and have been collecting data. So is it possible that there were, 
you know, other satellites from other civilizations that have now reached, uh, say, where our signals could reach. I think the likelihood is super high. Um, you know, the only thing is, what if, what if their state of being is one that we can't even begin to understand? You know, there were these crazy stories about when, when Western uh, settlers came to you know the United States and and met the indigenous population, that the indigenous population didn't actually understand right it couldn't couldn't even fathom their brains couldn't even put together what a ship was because they'd never seen it before so their mm-hmm. brains constructed something different right and they saw ripples in the waves but they didn't see the ship right and so you know what i wonder is like uh you know is alien life so beyond that which we can comprehend that our brains are not filling in those gaps and not allowing us to understand or see anybody else they could be among us that's a pretty uh that's a pretty good answer that might be the best alien answer we've got yet. <laughs> <laughs> I like the question change. Honestly, I was really struggling to think of how I could come up with a different answer for the for the alien pet. Uh, at, at, some, at some point, we got to change it up, right? Oh, totally, totally. All right what what uh, what question you got for me? Yeah, so you've had a bunch of interviews now, right? And uh, you have talked to tons of different people uh, from all kinds of different, uh, you know, companies and experiences and all this. What do you feel like is the thread that exists between everybody you've had on the show? Thread that... What makes... What puts everybody in common, right? Um, you know, so entrepreneurs, it might be their ability to take risk, right? Um, what do you see as as the thing that might be in common amongst all of your your show guests? So there's two things. Uh, one is, I, I would say, one is I actually don't think that most people think what they're doing is that risky. And then two is, I think most or, or every single person has a propensity for innovation and action, right? And what I mean by that is humans by nature are risk averse, right? And entrepreneurs don't actually take that much risk. I think they take very calculated uh, risks, but they're not nearly as risky to the entrepreneur as they are to maybe somebody looking from the outside. Sure. Right? So, so, so I think that's a, a thing that plays out for sure in the crypto space where, you know, look, you have people who are saying, this is absolute garbage. It's going to zero. This is ridiculous. You know, all that kind of stuff. And the people in crypto have like this just absolute hellbent belief this is going to change the world. Those are such opposing views that the people in the industry don't think it's nearly as risky as the people outside. So I think that's one you know core piece. And the second thing is of uh, this propensity for action and innovation. Um, if you are involved in venture capital, entrepreneurship, you know, et cetera, obviously you are going to uh, like innovation, think about innovation, participate in innovation, you know, et cetera. But I think what separates the current members of the industry, maybe from the people who will participate in the industry in the years to come, 
are the individuals today have to have a, a propensity for action, right? And what sure. I mean by that is they're the early adopters. They are the people who you know show up uh, on a new land and they burn the boats and they say, "I'm going all in." Um, and so that propensity for action and innovation, um, I think, is rare. Um, it, it plays out, you know, across uh, entrepreneurship, obviously, but but this industry specifically, just because I think the outsiders do see it as risky um, versus the people internally don't, um, or at least not as risky. Um, you know, you can see that even though people are doing different things from investing to building you know, different types of companies, um, it, it, it is that common thread that I've seen in, you know, various forms in every single guest. I like it. Burn the ships. <laughs> Definitely burn the ships. If uh, if you don't burn the ships, it's really hard to uh, to, to to stay committed, right? For sure. Um, all right, Matt. Listen, this, as always, it's a pleasure talking to you. This is uh, super um, interesting insights on in the industry, and then obviously uh, the big news uh, with the CoinVantage uh, acquisition. Um, we are uh, we're cheering for you, and uh, we'll have to do this again soon. Awesome. Really appreciate it. And if anybody wants to check us out, it's just interchangehq.com or on Twitter, we're interchangehq and I'm just at MG. Let's do it. All right. Thanks so much. Cheers. All right. You reached the end of the podcast. Congratulations. I appreciate you listening all the way to the end. You deserve a trophy. But before I hand out the virtual trophies, remember to go visit BlockFi.com slash POMP. They're the crypto lending leader in the US. They do it in 45 states, interest rates as low as 8%, and you can use the US dollars funded directly to your bank account to do whatever you want. You should definitely go visit BlockFi.com slash POMP. You know you want to do it, so just do it. BlockFi.com slash POMP. Hey everyone, POMP here. If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.